Well, about eight or nine years ago, when I was 29, 30, and you don't have to do the math in your head right now, okay, to figure out how, how old I am, but about eight or nine years ago, uh, late one night, I had been struggling to go to sleep at night. I couldn't sleep, um, and that had been happening for, for days on end. I was really struggling with sleeping. And that particular night, I was struggling with sleeping, and uh, the, the situation that I was in was, was overwhelming me to the point where I couldn't sleep. And that night in particular, I'll never forget, I began to feel like I couldn't breathe. And I began to feel like someone was like literally standing on my chest and that my chest was caving in. And so I was so scared. I was trying so hard to get a breath. I was literally with my hands, taking the sheets in my bed and turning them, just trying to get a breath. I was so anxious and so panicked about not feeling like I, I could breathe. I was grabbing my headboard. My wife was freaking out. I was telling her I can't breathe. I thought maybe I was having a heart attack. I didn't know what was happening, but I was only about 29 at the time. So I had no idea what was happening. Well, the next day, I went for a run and on this run, while I'm running, I'm just crying. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm just sobbing while I'm running. I get home, I'm sobbing, I'm on the floor, like in my living room, on the floor, sobbing. My wife, Darby, comes in and she's freaked out. She's wondering what's going on. She's asking me what's wrong, what's happening. And I really don't even know how to answer. I'm just, I can't stop crying. And listen, this had never happened to me before. I had no idea what was going on. Well, come to find out, I was having anxiety attacks. I was having panic attacks. And oftentimes when you have anxiety attacks, especially at, at night when you're not sleeping, you, you start to feel like you can't breathe. And maybe you've been in there before. Like oftentimes trauma or prolonged stress will lead to anxiety and prolonged anxiety and battles with fear can lead to anxiety attacks or it's ugly cousin depression. And maybe you've been there before. You might be thinking like, wait a second, like I've battled with that, like I've struggled with that, but aren't you a pastor? Like, why would you struggle with those things? Like, don't, isn't your life like all good and put together and fine? <laughs> no, nothing could be further from the truth. My life is just as messed up and as jacked up as yours is. And in case you're like, you're saying my life's jacked up? Like you're saying I'm, I'm messed up? Yes, absolutely I am because I know me. I'm messed up. I'm broken. And the creed of the Christian is actually, I'm sick and need a doctor. I'm broken and I need a savior. I need a rescuer. Jesus actually said he didn't come for those who think they're righteous. He came for those who know they're broken and sick. That's who Jesus came for. So the creed of the Christian is I'm broken. I'm messed up. I'm sinful. I need help. I need a rescuer. I need a savior because I can't do it on my own. I'm broken and messed up. That's the creed of the Christian. And Jesus has saved me. And so there is no room for arrogance or pride in the life of the believer because the creed of the Christian is I'm so messed up. I needed someone else to come and fix me and heal me and put me back together and rescue me. So yes, I I struggle, I battle with things. Anxiety is one of them that I struggle with and battle with on a, on a regular basis. And so did a lot of the spiritual giants that we read about in the scripture. Watch this. Moses suffered from anxiety as well. 
He had the burden of leading the nation of Israel. And at one point, there's so many people coming to him and he's overwhelmed because all these people are wanting his help and for his decision on, on, on what was going wrong between different people. And, and so they would come to him to judge and to make decisions. And so many people were coming to him. He was overwhelmed. He was filled with anxiety. And his father-in-law comes around and says, hey man, this isn't good. You need help. You need to delegate some of this stuff. And so help Moses get a new plan in place to deal with and to manage and to share the load, to share the burden of leading the nation of Israel. King David, one of the most famous kings in all of Israel's history, battled with depression and anxiety. When you read through the Psalms, I mean, you read this guy writing songs and, and these notes and these poems and they get pretty dark. Have you ever read Psalms? They get pretty dark. And David will often talk about the anxiety, the pressure, the burden that he feels. And, and he'll say things like it would be better for him to, to die. He actually at different points wished that God would just take his life. Elijah, right after the, the confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Some of you know this story. He calls down fire from heaven. It consumes the, the altar and there's this big victory for God and his people and, and for Elijah versus all these prophets of Baal and God shows himself to be the one true God. So after this huge victorious moment, the very next chapter, Elisha is saying, God, just take me out in my life. This is too much. I'm too overwhelmed. I'm too anxious. He's literally praying for God to just take him out, to wipe him out and to take him to heaven right then. He was ready to die. The prophet Jeremiah had such disturbing words that God gave him for the nation of Israel, words of judgment that they did not want to hear, that they did not like, but they were words from God. So Jeremiah being a prophet of God had to communicate and to speak this truth from God. And so Jeremiah was put in prison and was beat because of these words that he would deliver to God's people. They hated him for it. And Jeremiah was overwhelmed with this burden of, of delivering this, these words of judgment to the nation of Israel. Paul, like the apostle Paul, the guy that, that wrote a lot of our New Testament, said in 2 Corinthians 1 that he was so overwhelmed, he felt as if he could die. That's how overwhelmed he was. Jesus, the only perfect one on this list, said in the Garden of Gethsemane that his soul was overwhelmed to the point of death. Other translations say his soul. He said, I, I'm sorrowful. I'm so filled with grief that the Bible says he literally began to sweat drops of blood. That's how overwhelmed the perfect sinless son of God was. So make no mistake. You can be spiritual. You can be following God. You can be in the will of God and still be overwhelmed and burdened by what's going on around you. It doesn't mean you're less spiritual. It doesn't mean you're in sin. It doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. Jesus was perfect and without sin, yet he battled and struck. He had this overwhelming burden and grief in his soul, yet he was perfect and without sin. So let's just dispel the idea right now that if you follow Jesus, that your life's going to be great in roses and rainbows, and that's it. Or that if you're like blessed and highly favored, like People say today, well, how you doing, man? I'm blessed and highly favored. You know, it, it, that if you're blessed and highly favored, that you're not going to battle with anxiety or even depression. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, one of the most famous preachers 
in the 1800s. And many of you, if you're Christians, you've probably heard his name before because he is so often quoted still to this day. Charles Spurgeon, almost his entire ministry battled with depression. So much so that the elders in his church would literally have to pick him up off one of these pews, like pick him up physically and bring him on stage behind a pulpit so that he could rest on it and preach. But he was so depressed, almost his entire ministry, there are stories of the elders in his church physically picking him up and carrying him to the pulpit to preach. He battled with depression most of his life. And I think if we had three wishes, like if we could rub the the genie and the lamp and it come out and Will Smith, you know, all jacked, you know, offer you your, your three new wishes, most of us would wish for things like unlimited money, just like Aladdin did, for power, for good looks, for the perfect girl or guy to get married to. Most of us would wish for those things because we think that if we had those things in place, then there would be nothing to fear. We would be anxious of nothing. We wouldn't be overwhelmed. We wouldn't be burdened by anything. We would have nothing to be depressed about. If only all those things, if only we could get those three wishes, everything would be a-okay. But nothing, again, could be further from the truth. When we even look at our own society, our own culture, the richest people with the most power that are the best looking oftentimes in our society are the people that are the most messed up. And yet we listen to these people. I don't know why, but oftentimes we listen to them and take our cues for life even from them. But what's really going on in our hearts when we wish for things like unlimited money, power, looks, relationship, all those things, when we wish for those things, what it's really saying about what's going on in our heart is that we wish we didn't have to deal with things like trouble, like we talked about last week, or anxiety, or fear, or pressure. But my guess is a lot of the people in this room, I would be willing to guess right now, most of the people in this room are battling with, especially as school has just started. And especially if you're a freshman or especially if you're a senior, that's like in your last semester or last year and you're going to graduate and you're having to think about what's next and the job that's coming. Like my guess is most of you in this room, whether it's because of school, a life decision, finances, or a relationship, most of you are probably feeling a little bit anxious, a little bit fearful, a little bit overwhelmed. And some of you are like, forget a little bit. I'm talking about a lot of it. Like I'm a lot anxious and overwhelmed and fearful and under pressure. So what do we do? How do we deal with this thing? Because this is reality. How do we deal with this? How do we respond to the anxiety, fear, the feeling of being overwhelmed, the pressure? How do we deal and respond with these things? Well, if you got your Bible, go to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, uh, just like where we were last week, this is going to be the basis for this series. And so we'll be there again next week. But Psalm 46, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you on your phone, just jump on your web browser, go to radiochurch.com, select message notes. All the verses will be there for you. All the points that we're talking about are there for you. You can email it to yourself when you're done so you can take it with you and keep it. So raiderchurch.com and select message notes and you can follow along with us. There's fill in the blanks there to kind of help you actively stay involved and stay engaged in what we're talking about tonight, all right? So let's go. Psalm 46, here's what the psalmist says. Psalm 46, verse one, this is what we saw last week. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So in case you weren't here last week, here's what we said. Sometimes God keeps us from trouble. 
Some God helps us from trouble. Some, sometimes God removes the trouble, but oftentimes we read in the scripture, that's not the case. God doesn't remove the trouble. He doesn't remove the anxiety. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't, but God always wants to do this. He always is ready to help in times of trouble. You see, the assumption is we're going to go through times of trouble. We're going to deal with anxiety and the feeling of being overwhelmed. We're going to deal with pressure. So what then? Because it's not if, it's when. And so what then? What if you're anxious right now? You're fearful, you're, you're overwhelmed. What then? Well, God wants to help you. So let's keep going. Verse two, this is where we're at tonight. So we will not fear when the earthquakes come. We will not fear when the earthquakes come. Now, if you're from this area or anywhere around Texas, to my knowledge, uh, we don't deal with a lot of earthquakes, okay? But in this area, or as we say in West Texas, in these parts, we deal with tornadoes, okay? We have tornadoes. And last spring, how, how many of you were here last spring? Like you were in town, like you went to Tech or LCU or whatever, you were here last spring in Lubbock. Okay, so there's a lot of you that were here. You might remember the tornado apocalypse that hit us one day, right? I, I mean, there was, there was the forecast that all these tornadoes were gonna converge like on Lubbock all at once. So the whole city shut down. The campus shut down. They told you to seek shelter because there was this tornado apocalypse that was going to hit. And to me, it was like all these tornadoes are going to converge into like one big, huge, massive tornado. And it's going to be this tornado apocalypse. Well, praise God, no tornadoes hit that day. Like none, not like not one, not at least not in the city. There were some outside of Lubbock, but we know what tornadoes were like. And if you were here, you saw the madness that ensued because of the fear, the anxiety that gripped an entire city because of a tornado. Well, imagine an earthquake. When the ground is literally beneath you, it's moving and buckling underneath you. Like your very foundation beneath your feet is actually moving and giving way and everything around you is shaking and buildings are crumbling and coming down. Like the things that are supposed to protect us are literally falling down on top of us and then you realize there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do. You can't control it. You can't stop it. There's nothing you can do. That's a lot like anxiety. That's a lot like an overwhelming sense of fear. Everything is shaking and crumbling beneath you and around you and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a lot like anxiety. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter actually talks about anxiety and what we should do when we're feeling anxious. Watch this. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6, here's what Peter said. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. All right, we're going to stop there because we're going to participate real quick because this is the big idea. Like this is a huge part of what we're talking about tonight. Okay, so we're all going to say these four red words together. Okay, you ready? I don't think you're ready, but we're going to try. All right. So humble yourselves, therefore. That's all right. Let's try one more time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now watch this. Cast all your anxiety on him, on God, because he cares 
for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, isn't it interesting in these verses that talk about anxiety and how to deal with anxiety? Isn't it interesting that Peter talks about in the same context, like in these same verses, that your enemy Satan is prowling around like a lion and he's looking for people to take out. He's looking for people to devour. It's almost as if Peter is warning us that in moments of anxiety or when you're depressed or when you're overwhelmed with fear, that you're kind of at this pivotal moment, right? And that's a, po- that's a moment, that's a point where Satan at your lowest point wants to take you out. It's when you're anxious. It's when you're fearful. It's when you're overwhelmed. It's when you're feeling the, the pressure of every going, everything that's going on around you. Isn't it interesting that Peter says when you're anxious that the devil is trying to take you out? You see, some of you have been here before, but when you're down, when you're anxious, when you're fearful, like when you're at low, like rock bottom moments, it usually goes one of two ways. If it goes Satan's way, you turn from God, you run from God, you get angry at God, you're bitter towards God because of what you're going through. If Satan has his way, he wants to take you out. He wants to wipe you out in your lowest, weakest moment. It's a pivotal moment. That's what Satan wants when you're anxious. He wants to turn you against God. But God, your source of strength. Remember Psalm 46? God, your source of strength. He's your place of safety. He wants to help you in your time of need. And so here's what God wants. Satan at your lowest moment wants to take you out and ruin your life and for you to turn your back on God. But here's what God wants. God wants you to humble yourself under his mighty hand that he may lift you up and then cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, here's what you need to understand about these two verses right here are these two sentences. These two sentences right here at the very beginning in the Greek manuscripts, like in the original language, it's actually one sentence. In English, we've broken it down into two, but in Greek, these first two sentences, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, was the Greek language. These first two sentences are actually one sentence. They're one idea. They're one thought. When you read it in English, it kind of sounds like two thoughts, like humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and then another command, like cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. But that's not what's happening here. In the original language, this is one idea. It's one thought. And casting all your anxiety on him is the result of coming under God's hand. It's not the command. You see, if you've ever wanted to know, well, how do I cast all my anxiety on him? Like, how do I just give it to God? Like, how does that process work? Well, the way it works is by coming under God's mighty hand. You see, the casting is the result. It's not the command. The casting is dependent on the command to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So what does that mean then? If that's the way I cast my anxieties on God and that's what God wants for me and that's how God wants me to respond when I'm anxious or fearful or overwhelmed or feeling the pressure. If that's how God wants me to respond is is for my anxieties to be cast on him, he wants to take them. So then how does that happen? Well, I come under the mighty hand of God. So what does that look like? Well, in the scripture, the hand of God represents a lot of things, but tonight you're gonna see four of them. What does it look like to come under the mighty hand of God so that my anxiety is cast upon him? 
We need to know what the hand of God in scripture represents. Number one, the hand of God represents the plan of God. In the scripture, oftentimes the hand of God represents the plan of God. You see, when you're anxious, a lot of times you begin to have thoughts like this. It's not worth it. I said, just go back. I should quit. I should turn around. And what we're really saying, what's really going on in our hearts is God, you you don't have a plan. Like you don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening and you don't know what's happening. And you led me to this point, but you led me here to leave me. Because I don't feel you. Where are you at? It would be better for me to just quit, to turn around and to go back. That's the way it feels a lot of times when you're anxious. I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to quit. I should just go back. Well, some of you know the story of when Israel was released from slavery to Egypt and they're on the run. Through the 10 plagues and God using Moses, God saves and rescues his people, Israel, from slavery to the Egyptians. And as Israel is exiting and and leaving, they come to the stopping point at the Red Sea and all of a sudden they begin to feel the earth beneath them start to quake. But it's not an earthquake. It's the Egyptian army coming after them because Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's realized I've just lost my entire workforce. So we got to go get them back. So he sends his army after the Israelites. And here's what Israel begins to say when they begin to feel the earth quaking beneath them, quite literally, actually, because of the size of this army and because of their chariots, they begin to feel the rumble. They begin to feel them coming. They begin to feel the pressure. They begin to feel the fear. And here's what Israel began to say to Moses. Why did you just bring us out of slavery? You brought us out. Why? You just brought us here to die. We should, we were better off. We were better off in slavery to the Egyptians. We should just go back. We should just give up. We should just surrender and go back. And they begin to grumble against God and against Moses. And here's what they were saying. God rescued us and saved us. And he brought us here just to leave us and let us die. So then God tells Moses, Moses, take the staff that's in your hand and lift it up. And so Moses takes the staff in his hand. He lifts it up and the waters to the Red Sea part. And Israel walks through on dry land to the other side. And then when the Egyptians come after them and come through on the dry land, the waters come down, wipes out the Egyptian army and Israel is saved. And for generations after that, like generation after generation for the next hundreds and thousands of years, even to this day, here's what the scripture says. And here's what the nation of Israel said. God rescues us with his outstretched arm and his mighty hand. They don't say it was Moses's hand. No, no, no. They said God saved us with his mighty hand. He had a plan. He had a plan all along to show us his 
glory, to show us his power, to show us that he wants to be our help and our source of power and safety in our time of need. God rescued us with his mighty hand. He had a plan. So in the scripture, the hand of God often represents the plan of God. Number two, the hand of God often represents the provision of God. You know, when you're anxious, you're fearful, you're feeling overwhelmed, oftentimes what you'll begin to think, what you'll begin to say in your mind is, I don't have what it takes. I can't do this. I, I, I don't have enough. Like, I can't get this done. I'm not enough. Some of you remember the story of when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000. And it's interesting that each time faced with the, the feet, the task of, of feeding thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, Jesus looks to the disciples and says, hey guys, you give them something to eat. Almost as if Jesus intentionally put them in a situation where they realized we don't have enough. We don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to get the job done. And so they literally are telling Jesus, Jesus, there's thousands of people here. We don't have any food. And basically here's what Jesus says. Okay, this is my translation. This wasn't actually what Jesus said, but, but this is kind of my version of what Jesus said. It was basically kind of like, well, bring me what you got. And so they scour, they begin to find, okay, what, what do we have? What do we have? We don't have enough, but what do we have? He told us to bring it to him. So they find some, in each account, they find some loaves and some fishes and they bring it to Jesus and they place it in his hands. And what does Jesus do? He prays, he blesses it, and he begins to break it and pass it out. Basket after basket after basket after basket, thousands of times over until everyone is fed. And not only that, there's more than enough. There's actually some left over. So they're not enough in Jesus's hands turns into more than enough. They're not enough and Jesus's hands turns into more than enough. The hand of God often represents the provision of God. You see, God wants us to bring our not enough, I don't have what it takes and put it in his hands because when we put it in his hands, he will multiply it and provide for us and everyone around us in ways you can't possibly imagine. You see, our culture wants to tell us, especially today, especially on social media, you're enough. You've got what it takes. So find yourself, be yourself, harness yourself, center yourself, discover and harness your, your chi and your energy and all those kinds of things. Like our culture preaches to us, especially through social media, be yourself, you're enough. And the scripture says over and over and over again, you're not enough. You don't have what it takes. The Bible very clearly says there is no one good, no, not one. You're not good enough to have a relationship with God. You're not enough to do what God is calling you to do and what he wants out of your life. You're not enough to fulfill the plans of God for your life, but he is. And if you will take your not enough and put it in his hands, he will multiply your not enough and he will turn it into more than enough. 
You see, Paul didn't say, you are your hope of glory. Paul said, Christ in me is my hope of glory. Paul didn't say, I can do all things through my own strength. No, no, no. Paul said, through Christ and in Christ, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So make no mistake, our culture is dead wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to center yourself or find yourself or to be yourself. The scripture says over and over and over again, you're broken, you're messed up, you don't want have what it takes, you fall short. So give your life to Jesus and he will give you his spirit and he will enable you to do things you could never do on your own. So the hand of God often represents the provision of God. Third, the hand of God often represents the protection of God. The hand of God often represents the protection of God. Oftentimes when we're anxious or fearful or, or, or overwhelmed, we feel like our, our life's on the line or we're going to be hurt or we're going to be damaged or, or we aren't going to recover or we're going to suffer some sort of loss. We, we, we don't feel protected. We don't feel safe. Some of you may feel like that being in a new place, in a new city, in a new home, in a new bed, eating different food, brand new friends, your family miles away. Like I, I know some of you battle with this, like that feeling of safety because you don't feel like you're home. Some of you know the story of when Peter saw Jesus walking on the water and he thought, man, that looks pretty cool. I'd like to do that too. And Jesus just says, yeah, come on out. The water's great. Come on up, come join me. Peter starts walking. And Peter's actually walking on water. Well, then Peter begins to feel the, the wind around him. He begins to feel the waves beneath him. He starts to get scared. And in his fear, he takes his eyes off Jesus. And he begins to sink. Well, as Peter begins to sink, he cries out to Jesus, save me, Jesus, save me. And because Jesus was right there with him the whole time, Jesus grabs him by the hand and picks him up. You see, Peter was sinking, but he wasn't yet sunk. And in his fear, he cried out to his Lord. He cried out to Jesus to save him. And because Jesus was right there, Jesus grabbed him with his hand and lifted him up out of the water. You see, Peter was always in the grip of Jesus. And so I want you to know tonight, you may feel like you're sinking, but you aren't yet sunk. You're in his grip. You may not realize it, you may not see it, but just like Peter was sinking, but not yet sunk in the sinking, he cried out to Jesus to save him. And Jesus with his hand picked him up and grabbed him and pulled him up out of the water. You may be sinking, but you're not yet sunk. Cry out to your Lord Jesus to save you. And he will offer you his hand of protection. And then finally, the hand of God in the scripture often represents 
the propitiation of God. Now, I know some of you are like, what? What is that? What is that? Like, I, I, I get plan, check, provision. I understand that. I know what that word means. Protection. I get that. I know what that word means. But what, is, what does this word mean? Well, if you had a, like a old Bible, like a King James Version Bible, this word would be in there. Or if you, you grew up singing like some old, old hymns, like some of the oldest hymns still have this word in there, the propitiation of God. And it's an important word. And I use this word instead of the more common term for it to get your attention. Because this is probably one of the most important words in all of the scripture in our more common or more recent translations, we use different words that we understand that makes sense to us because we don't use this word a lot. But, but here's what I mean. Let me, let, me, let me explain this, the propitiation of God. When Jesus had risen from the grave and he starts appearing to the disciples, Thomas doesn't buy it. And so he got the name and we still refer to him as, as such as the doubting Thomas, Right? And so Thomas says, no, I'm not going to believe it unless I see his hands, unless I can touch his hands and put my hand in his side, like until I see him with my own two eyes and I touch his hands and I can put my hand in his side where the spear went, I'm not going to believe. Well, sure enough, Jesus shows up on the scene before Thomas even has a thought or word in his mouth, Jesus, knowing his heart, knowing what he's been saying, knowing his struggle, offers Thomas his hand and says, Thomas, look, here's my hand. Put your finger in the wound. You see, why did Thomas want to see his hands? Because he knew that Jesus had taken nails through the hands when they nailed him to the cross. He wanted to see the nail wounds. In fact, that's what Thomas actually said. Let me see until I see the wounds in his hands. I won't believe. Well, Jesus shows up, shows him. Thomas puts his hand, his fingers into the wound itself. He touches the wound on Jesus' side. Jesus is now risen from the grave. He's got a resurrected body, but he still has the wounds from when he was crucified on the cross. And Thomas gets to see him and he gets to put his hand in. He gets to touch the wound in Jesus' hands. Can you imagine? And I wonder, I, I just wonder, the Bible didn't say this, but I wonder, if when Thomas put his finger into the hand of Jesus, like when he actually touched the wound, like the hole in his hand where the nail went, like I just wonder if right at that moment when Thomas touched his hand, if Isaiah 53 didn't go through his mind in a flash where it says he would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be bruised for our iniquity. In other words, here's what Isaiah 53 is saying. He would be pierced for our sin, for our rebellion. He would be bruised. He would be crushed. He would be slaughtered for our sin. And I wonder if when Thomas touched his hand and put his hand, his own fingers in the nail scarred hands of Jesus, if that instantly went through his mind, it was written 700 years before the time of Christ, that he would be pierced for our transgression and he would be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. And I wonder if when Thomas put his 
finger and the nail wounds in Jesus's hands, if he didn't remember, he would be pierced for my transgression. He would die for my sin. And just like the lamb in the old covenant would be my sacrifice for my sin, dying in my place. In fact, in the old covenant, when you brought your sacrifice for your sin to atone for your sin, like to appease the wrath of God against your sin, you would bring a perfect spotless lamb oftentimes. And before you would release the lamb to the high priest to be killed for your sin, You would put your hand on the lamb and you would say, this lamb is going to die in my place for my sin. And then the perfect spotless lamb would be taken away and slaughtered. Taking the wrath of God meant for your sin upon itself. Sound familiar? I wonder if Thomas, when he put his hands, his finger into the nail wounds, if he instantly remembered, he would be pierced for my transgression and this lamb died in my place for my sin. The propitiation of God is used in Romans chapter three, where Paul kind of says it all like this. In Romans 3, verse 25, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. That's what it means to be the propitiation of God. It means to be the sacrifice for sin that dies in our place, that takes the wrath of God upon itself so that we don't have to experience it. So he goes on to say, God presents Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Now watch this, people are made right with God. That's just a a phrase that uh, is an easier way of saying righteous. Some translations say people are made righteous, but righteous just means being made right with God. So people are made right with God when what? When they're good enough? When they try harder, when they do better, when they stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things? When you've been to church enough times, when you've read your Bible enough times, when you've given enough money, when you've prayed, I mean, that's not what the Bible says. Good people don't go to heaven. You're not made right with God when you've done enough good things. You're not made right with God if your good outweighs your bad. That's not what it means to be righteous. The Bible says you're only made right with God when what? When you believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. When you believe that Jesus was the propitiation for my sin. He died in my place for my sin. He took the wrath of God that was meant for me for my sin. And he took it upon himself through his death on the cross. He was my sacrifice of atonement. See, Ephesians 2 says... By our nature, we're objects of the wrath of God. Romans 5 says that you're actually enemies with God, not not pals, not friends. He's not your big man upstairs. You're enemies with God and his wrath is coming against you. Eternity separated from him in a place called hell. That's the fine for your sin. You've broken God's law, you pay God's fine. God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell. 
But God loves you so much that he sent his own son, Jesus, to be your sacrifice of atonement, to die in your place for your sin. And the Bible says when you believe that Jesus died in your place for your sin, you can't be good enough. I'm not enough. I'll never be good enough. I've fallen short of his standard, but Jesus has met the standard and he's died in my place. When I give my life to Jesus, the Bible says my sin's totally forgiven. I'm made right with God. And I can know for sure that when I die, I'm going to heaven, but not when I've been good enough, not because you're here tonight, not because you come next week or try to do better or do your best. You could try your best this week and you will fall desperately short. You're only made right with God when you believe that Jesus sacrificed his life for you in your place. John said it like this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones. It's Jesus. You can't atone for your sin. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God or to remove your sin. Jesus is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. And not only for our sin, but for the sin of God the world. And when Thomas saw the nail wounds in his hand that provided the propitiation of his sin, he said, my Lord and my God, he believed my Lord and my God. He saw that Jesus was the propitiation of his sin when he saw the wounds in his hands. Some of you are here tonight, you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. You've been thinking you could do better, try harder. Hopefully your good deeds outweigh your your bad deeds. Kind of when you stand before God one day, maybe he'll let you in, maybe he won't. You don't know. The Bible says you can be sure. You can be 100% sure, not because of you doing anything, but because of what Jesus has already done for you. When he died on that cross, he said, it's finished, it's done. The payment has been paid. The fine has been paid in full. So some of you are here tonight and you need to give your life to Jesus so that you can be forgiven of your sin. And if that's you, just let us know on our connect form at raiderchurch.com that you're giving your life to Christ tonight. But this is what it looks like to come under the hand of God. It's to come under the plan of God. It's to humble yourself to the provision of God. It's to humble yourself to the protection of God. It's to humble yourself to come underneath the propitiation of God, his son, Jesus. And when you do that, the result is that your anxiety is cast on him who cares for you. And he's proved he's cared for you and that he loves you when he sent his own son, Jesus, to be himself the sacrifice for your sin. He died in your place for your sin. He loves you. And so when you come under the hand of God, watch this. When you come under the hand of God, it releases anxiety's pressure. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 5. Come under the mighty hand of God and as a result, your anxieties will be cast on him who cares for you. Now, it doesn't mean your situation or your circumstance gonna change. It doesn't mean what's going around you changes. But it always means God will do something inside of you. God will change what's going on inside of you as maybe that pressure from anxiety is released. 
Your mind has changed. Your heart has changed. Your faith is strengthened. God will always do something inside you. He may not remove it, but he's going to help you through it. And he helps you through it when you come under the mighty hand of God. Now let's go back to Psalm 46. We talked about it last week. And all the chaos and change and fear and everything, quaking and crumbling and and wars and all those kinds of things. Remember what Psalm 46 verse 10 said? In the middle of all of this, in the chaos, be still and know. And so the same is true when you're anxious, when you're fearful, when you're overwhelmed, when your anxiety begins to attack. Watch this. Here's the challenge. Be still and know. That's what Psalm 46 verse 10 says. And all the changing and all the anxiety when your world seems like it's quaking and crumbling and everything's falling down around you and falling apart and there's nothing you can do, you can't control it. It's making you feel anxious. Be still and and know. And last week we talked about a lot of things that Psalm 46 tells us to be still and know that this isn't just being a still and kind of clearing and emptying my mind. This is a being still and knowing some things about God. And we saw a bunch of those last week, but here's what I want you to see tonight. When Psalm 46 says, be still and know, here's what I want you to know and remember tonight is that I've got the upper hand. Be still and know, no matter what's going on in my life, I've got the upper hand. I've got the hand of God that wants to protect me and provide for me and provide a a sacrifice for the atonement of my sin. And I've got the hand of God that represents the, the plan of God. No matter what's going on in my life, I've got the upper hand and the hand of God is strong and God wants to strengthen you with his upper hand in your time of trouble. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, just heads bowed, eyes closed, just all over this place. If you're here tonight and and you're feeling anxious, like what we've been talking about has resonated with you, like you're fearful, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're, you're feeling anxious, would you just slip your hand up and say, yeah, that's me. Just be real. Hands up everywhere. If that's you, just slip your hand up and say, yeah, I've been anxious, I've been fearful, I felt overwhelmed, I've, I felt under pressure. For those of you that have your hands up, and and even if you don't, here's what I want you to know tonight. You're not alone. You can put your hands down. But just right now between you and God, there were hands up all over this room saying, yeah, that's me. You're not alone. You're not the only one feeling that way. I often feel that way. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, when we feel like that, We're supposed to share it with our family in Christ. In fact, when you keep reading in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, hey, remember your family. When you're feeling anxious, remember your family. All over the world is going through exactly what you're going through. So you're not alone. And then Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 1, share it, share it with other people because God has designed the body of Christ to comfort each other with the comfort that God has given us. So we're supposed to comfort each other. And some of us are running from the body of Christ or we have been. 
And when you do that, you're actually running from the very group God has designed you to do the Christian life with. And so as Mark was talking about earlier, I want you to know tonight, you need a circle because you don't need to go through this alone. We don't do the Christian life on our own. You need a circle that can circle around you. And when you're down or when you're anxious or when you're fearful or there for you to pray for you and to lift you up, you need a circle so that you don't go through this alone. Remember, as Peter said, remember your family. Take that step of faith. Find that small group with some people that you can pray with and read the Bible with and encourage and be encouraged by. It's the way you were designed to do the Christian life. You're not alone. And now I wanna invite you to stand. Our team's gonna lead us in a time of worship. And as they do, I wanna remind you tonight that you've got the upper hand. In fact, Paul said after, he said, I felt overwhelmed to the point of death. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 1, he said, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure it. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger and he will rescue us again. And so we've placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. God, I pray tonight as we sing, you would remind us tonight, God, that we've got the upper hand that you've rescued us from sin and death and you will rescue us again and again and again. And so remind us tonight, God, that we've got the upper hand, that your hand is strong and that even if we're sinking, we're not yet sunk. And so tonight, God, as we sing, God, I pray that people all over this room would cry out to Jesus to save them with his mighty hand.